Well, if you grew up in a liturgical church, you've been reading Psalm 31 and Mark 15 probably since you were a little kid, um, every time we come around to Palm Sunday. And even if you grew up in a tradition that maybe you only did Good Friday and Easter, you've been reading these passion narratives probably your whole life. So as I sat with this this week, I just began to wonder how is it that these passages have been so meaningful to billions of people for over a period of 2,000 years? I mean, these passages have been read around Easter and Holy Week for a couple thousand years. And literally billions of people have been nourished by them. And as I thought, there's no grand universal philosophical theory of life laid out here. There's not pipe pop psychological answers, you know, the kind of thing you might have found on Oprah or something. That kind of thing is not here. There aren't what we'd call technological or scientific explanations of human life here or origins or even where humanity's going. There's nothing like that in these passages. So then what do they do? Why have Christians for the millennia celebrated them the way they do? And I think the answer is something like this, that these stories reveal direct personal experience with God. They reveal direct personal experience with God. So that within these stories, as Beth led it through, led us through with Barabbas, are these very tangible human realities. And in the story, as we just heard read, there are various types of experiences happening, from perceptions to thoughts. People were using their imagination. People had emotional reactions to what was happening. The events of these stories triggered desires. They alerted people to the state of their will. And so what I want to say this morning regarding these readings is that a key to Christian spirituality is that we know things are real by our interactions with them. I was walking out of the gym yesterday after swimming and, and uh, was walking out by the weights. And, and any of you who have ever been to a gym know the, the sound of a thud of a weight hitting the floor and somebody going, dang it, or worse, right? And, you know, watching their feet. Well, Why? They're aware by direct experience what it takes to push a weight or to pull a weight. And they're aware by direct experience what weight does to toes, right? And that's where the, that feeling, the thoughts, the impressions, the desire, will, emotions, all that comes out of direct experience of something, not theories about weights or theories even about gravity, but direct experience. And the reason I think this is crucial to Christian spirituality is that we're dealing often with invisible things, things like the kingdom of God. Where is it? How is it? What are the modes in which it expresses itself? What are the means by which we could come to access it? So with the kingdom, we're dealing with a reality that's invisible. Or what about something like Trinity? When we think of Trinity, we're dealing with something that is invisible. And we come to know them not mostly through theological propositions about them. We mostly come to know them by interaction. So to just use one simple example, what did Jesus say about the kingdom? Seek it first. He didn't give a Bible study on Basileia, right? That's the Greek term for kingdom. He didn't sort of say, well, let's look into the etymology of that word kingdom. You know, he didn't do a lectionary, dictionary sort of study on kingdom. He said, seek it. 
Interact with it. This is how you'll come to know what's true and real, and this is how you'll learn to interact with it, is if you seek it. And you seek it through sustained attention. That's what seek means. Give it your sustained attention. And as you do that, you'll begin to have direct experience with it. And as you begin to have direct experience with the ruling and reigning of God in and around you, you will find that this kind of direct personal experience is the primary path to discipleship. See, otherwise, we're just left with sort of vague considerations about our world. It, it hit me this week that I don't think I know of anybody who's happy with the state of the world. Think about it. I mean, I'm aware often that I'm not. Like, I'll read something in a news feed and think, you know, you, you just feel that feeling of, oh, God, the world seems out of control. So, like, who is happy with the world? Well, kids aren't. And lots of adults were upset at the kids yesterday. And Democrats aren't happy about the state of the world for their own set of reasons. Republicans are you know, upset about the state of the world for their own reasons. Women are upset at the state of the world. Men are upset at the state of the world. Old people are upset at the state of the world. We could go on and on and on. Do you know anybody who's happy about the state of the world? I'm not, seriously, I'm not sure I know anybody. Not a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a family member. Everybody just sort of sees this sort of unhappy state. And, and so what we see around us mostly is kind of a desperation, a hopelessness, where you find, therefore, we get increasingly sort of self-absorbed. And what Jesus wants to say when he talks about this direct interaction with him is that even people like that can find healing by discovering that God and his kingdom are surprisingly real. They're knowable, things like kingdom and trinity. And they're unspeakably marvelous. And that this knowledge then becomes the basis for new attitudes and actions, right? So I want you to give just a little bit of sustained attention to the candle on the left side of the table. Just give it a little bit of sustained attention. Just let your gaze fall on it. You might think about what you know about candleness. If you're a philosopher, you can laugh now, right? So candleness. But if you gave it a little more sustained attention and came up and put your hands around uh, the glass orb, you would find out that it's slightly warm there. And I know from years past when I've tried to take it off too soon, it's actually hot. And if you were to get closer to the fire, you would discover even a different way of knowing. And so you come to know what's real by sustained attention to it and interaction with it. And this is the same way you come to know Christ. Knowing Christ is not first and foremost Christology, which is simply a a segment of systematic theology that tries to understand Christ. But it's full of propositions and abstractions and stuff, and it's fine. I've read that stuff my whole life, and I'm sure I've benefited from it. I don't mean to say it's unimportant. I just mean to say it's not the same thing as direct, personal knowledge. That I live in an atmosphere not full of the desperation merely of the world's trauma, but in the air around us, the air around us, the oxygen that we're sharing in this room is permeated with God and his kingdom. Now that becomes something less formally abstract and real as you give yourself sustained attention to it and come to know that it's real by experience. And I think it's on that path that we find healing for feelings that disorder our will when we just merely see what's around the world. And as we give ourselves to this, we find a trust that yields surrender to God. And not just surrender to God in some sort of moral or ethical way, but surrender to God that brings actual freedom and peace and joy. The kinds of things that happen when we really find ourselves trusting and being able to surrender. 
Surrender to what the H-E double toothpicks is Barabbas the one being released for, right? What if you were standing there that day? How do you give yourself to that in trust? How could you surrender to that? It seems, if there were a definition of unjust, you would think if you looked up unjust in Wikipedia, there'd be a picture of Barabbas being released. So what does one do with that? How does one surrender to that? How does one maintain trust in God? I mean, it's just another reason to think, yeah, doggone it, we got almost to the end of this story. We kept hoping and then hoping against Jesus being Messiah, but now I'll forget it. You know, here we go again, I'll just forget it. If that's the way God is, come on, can you keep it real here for a minute? If that's the way God is, that's either capricious in some nutty, evil way, meaning uh, you know, that's just sort of an unpredictable God that can't be called good, or God isn't actually at work in this narrative, and you know, damn it, here we go again, this is just about the powers. This is about the Jewish ruling council, or this is about the high priest, or this is about Pilate, or this is about the Roman governor, or maybe this got kicked up all the way to Caesar. But this can't be God at work. This, everything about that, that narrative runs counter to everything we think is true and good. And so does seeing pictures of blown up babies in Syria, or whatever's on your newsfeed on any given day. It runs completely counter to sort of a Christian theology that says, with the coming of Christ was the beginning of God's end. But now we've had 2,000 years of human suffering on the other side of that. How does one make sense of that? You wanna keep it real? How does a faithful Jew in any way continue to believe in God, Yahweh, Yehovah? How does any Jew continue to believe in God post-Holocaust? And so this is the narrative that lies back of everything. See, that seems true and real, and we interact with it. We interact with our own physical pain. We interact with our own sickness. We interact with the death of loved ones. We interact with driving by horrible car crashes. You know, whatever. That's all really real, and we feel an interaction with it. And I just want to say that your relationship to God lies along that path. It's interacting with him, not simply thinking about him. So for instance, when Jesus says, John 15, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now again, we could get out a Greek dictionary and we could all look up the Greek word for joy and we could do some etymology. What's the history of this word? We could do some, we could trace it in how it's used in classical Greek. We could chase it down in, in biblical Greek. We could do all kinds of stuff thinking about joy. But joy here in Jesus' heart, you just, have, just think with me for a second. He can't have been saying something like that. He couldn't have said, I hope that you have cognition of this wonderful theological idea. Right? I mean, he can't have been saying that. He has to have been saying something like, my hope is that the joy I've known in the ups and downs of being Messiah, the joy I've known in relationship with the Father, the world's one true creator, Lord, the joy I've known in that, I pray, will be in you. It's, a, it's an experienced kind of joy. And I just wanna say, I think, just looking at my own life, if nothing else, that without this personally experienced union with God, that people end up feeling defeated by mere religion. And th there's a lot of reasons that we could talk about this morning about why people are kind of giving up on church. But I think this has to be somewhere near the middle of it. That without a genuine ongoing experience of union with God, religion just feels empty, especially against the backdrop of life's real challenges and addictions. And so people tend to give up. Now in the old days when they sort of gave up, they still came to church, like sort of barely hanging on from, by a thread. And that's what's different now. 
No one thinks I'll go, I'll, I've sort of given up on religion, but, I, but you know, sort of in our family tradition, so we, we still go to church. But, but the truth of it is, I don't really get it. I'm barely hanging on by a thread. Well, you know, that, that was true in the 50s, maybe even through some time in the 80s. It's just not true anymore. People don't do that anymore. So then when we get to our readings, like Psalm 31, the psalmist here knows all about this experience. Now, this psalm is a, is a psalm of sometimes called complaint or lament. It just simply means, if you let your eyes just sort of gaze over that psalm again while I say this, that this is just an honest acknowledgement of affliction. Can you see that? Of deep, real, personal distress, of anguish and grief over being ill, and the isolation and alienation that it often brings. And any of you who've ever had a sick parent in a nursing home or skilled nursing home or something, my dad had a major stroke when he was like 55 and lived till he's like 71, I think, so 16 years you know, sort of barely alive in a nursing home. And I, you know, I would go see him all the time. I was his basic caretaker. And the thing I most remember from those years is the deep isolation that all those old people lived in. Just literally, you know, that you can picture it, just sitting in hallways, drooling, you know, their heads hanging down. You know how they sit. And nobody around them, no one caring for them. And this is what the psalmist is picturing. It's not just the illness. It's the social isolation. It's the sort of communal element of it. And the darkness of mind, the dryness of soul, the, the feeling that everything is going contrary to expectations. You know, that shouldn't happen to you when you're 55, right, or whatever. Or somebody gets in a, like a horrible accident at work or something, you know, that shouldn't happen. And so it's the, the feeling of contrariness to expectations. And then I think right at the heart of it, for many people, there's this fear of being God-forsaken. Like, was I God-forsaken? Why did I get T-boned in that intersection? Why am I now laying in the hospital in a full body cast or whatever? Like, am I the God forsaken? I could be. I've done a lot of bad things in my life. Or I've been cheating at work. Is that why this happened? Or I've been cheating on my spouse. Is that why this happened? Maybe I'm the God forsaken. And that's what's core to these sort of honest lamenting psalms. And we read this psalm during Lent, uh, and typically this week on Palm Sunday, because of verse 5, which is not in our reading. And verse five, you have the, the quote, into my hands, or sorry, into your hands, I commend my spirit, that word of Jesus from the cross. And so this whole psalm is meant to capture the darkness of Jesus's trials and crucifixion and meant to reveal hope in the midst of these terrible circumstances by experiencing God's steadfast love and mercy. So I forgot to write down the verse, but about halfway through the psalm, you, you see the word but, B-U-T, See that there on your page? So we, we do need to do a little bit of Hebrew, Hebrew vocabulary here. Um, not all B-U-T's are created equal. Um, they, uh, they have different forms and take different shapes and meanings in literature. And this is what's known as a very strong adversative. So forget that. It just means a strong contrast. It's like I'm feeling all this deep in my bones, but strong contrast I trust in you, Lord. Do you see that? I trust in you. I say, based on experiential knowledge, you are my God and my times are in your hands. So now since the experience of this, I love the way Eugene gets this in the message. So as I read this to you, just try to sense the experience in this. I'm leaping and singing in the circle of your love. You didn't leave me in the clutches of trouble and rejection, but gave me room to breathe. Hour by hour, I place my days in your hands, safe from the hands that are out to get me. You warm me, your servant, with a smile. 
Save me, I pray, because you love me. That, that's, that. So the psalmist works through all that grief, pivots through that giant contrast of but, and arrives at a place like that. And that is not doctrine, as important as doctrine is. That is a lived, direct experience. So then we read Mark 15 on Palm Sunday for similar reasons, meaning that this story tells us that the Messiah understands all the pain and social rejection of Psalm 31. And so this story uh, now that we mark with Holy Week and pivoting this week towards Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter, it's meant to say to us something like this, that this story is meant to be so powerful that it grabs our attention and that it disrupts our lives as they're normally known in just the rhythms of all the pain and hurt of human life and begins to transform our hearts. Again, that's what you see in the story. And if you just let your eyes glance over the gospel reading and just see if you can notice the names, everyone was experiencing something about God in this story and maybe learning something about how it is that God is active in Christ. So the chief priests were experiencing something. What do you suppose that was? Pilate was experiencing something. Peter about to betray him, or has betrayed him. He's experiencing something. Jesus is experiencing something. Barabbas is experiencing something. The crowds are experiencing something. The Jewish council is experiencing something. Everybody is having experiential knowledge. So the one that stands out for me the most is, you know, when Jesus wouldn't answer Pilate, and Pilate says something to him like, can't you see this long list of charges the DA has, you know, produced against you, and you won't say anything about it? And Jesus wouldn't. And it says that Pilate was amazed. We could say he was impressed. Now, if I use a word like impressed, do you think first personal knowledge or do you think first theory? Of course, you think first personal knowledge. That impressed me. So see, Jesus made an impression. And and so what Pilate got to experience there was something of the quality of the person of Jesus. Now, we could slide that into an abstract Christology, a theory of Jesus. We could take that impression of what it is when an innocent man responds the way he did, and we could slide that bit of data into something that we could then make that an aspect of Christology. Or we could say that if you'll do what it takes to put yourself in the presence of Jesus through the gentle, spiritual, grace-filled patterns and practices, let's say, of the spiritual disciplines, so that in silence or solitude or meditation on scripture or worship or forms of prayer, that if you'll do what it takes to put yourself in the presence of Jesus, you too might find yourself being impressed. And that will fund followership. Mental abstractions don't normally really fund followership. They fund more mental abstractions, which then gets rolled up into, let's say, your denomination which then gets rolled up into this world religion called Christianity, but it doesn't normally get rolled up to an active, ongoing, interactive, conversational relationship with a living person, right? So what happens when you you think more than just Jesus is alive as an abstraction and think of it as direct personal experience, that actually as I live my life, I live it in partnership with him. I think I've told you before, often when I'm just going about my daily work, or going to give a talk somewhere or something, I'll just say, okay, Jesus, me and you, let's go do our work together. Just me and you, let's go go do what we're doing. Whatever it is we're doing, I'm gonna have a conversation, maybe a sweet one, where I get to give somebody good news, or maybe a tough one, whatever. Come on, Jesus, you and I, let's just go do our stuff. So just to land this plane, so what what are we actually shooting for in Christian spirituality? 
What are we shooting for in, when we say a word like, a phrase like discipleship to Jesus? And for me, it always raises the question, well, what was God shooting for in creation? What were his purposes? What's his sense of telos? What's his, what's his sense of completion and fulfillment? And I would wanna suggest that it means something like experiential friendship with an always present, always loving God who's up to something in the world and invites us to participate in this work. I mean, this is the obvious story of scripture. Adam and Eve, come work with me in this amazing new creation. Oops, it went wrong. Abraham, I'm gonna make you into this great nation and you're gonna work with me to bring creation to its fulfillment. And then you just fast forward to John the Baptist and Jesus and Acts 2 and the forming of the church and you have this story that God is meant to have a people who interacted with him for the good of others. I mean, that is a very simple way to tell this whole story. God's creating a people, why? To be his cooperative friends, why? So that they could exist for the healing of the earth and that then someday there will be this new heaven and this new earth. But I know how it goes. Our experience of life is often very far from this and that there are people sitting here this morning who are experiencing deep loss through people who've exited your life, maybe through something benign like a job transfer or graduation or something horrible like death, or maybe you've been betrayed, or maybe you've been trying to live life really right. Maybe you're one of those rule keepers that got somewhere deep down in you when you were a little kid and, and you try to do life just right so that mom or dad or a spouse or somebody who rejected or abandoned you or cheated on you would come to accept you. And it's precisely being stuck like that that makes us skeptical about goodness or love or truth. And unfortunately, that kind of skepticism rules our life with an iron fist. All of our ideas rule our lives. You cannot act, act outside of your ideas. Whatever you think to be true, usually subconsciously, pre-consciously, is what you're gonna act out of. But again, if we brought this back to personal experience, what if we knew that right here, right now, right in this room, there's a good and loving God who never lets his friends down, who embraces his children, who never abandons them and invites them into that kind of direct lived experience. So for me, every year when we come to this time, I think of Monday Thursday and kind of warm table fellowship out there on the patio, kind of you know, mimicking in a good sense, um, symbol, uh, symbolizing the Passover meal, coming in here, the deep, uh, evocative, emotional aspect of stripping the altar, of Good Friday, thinking the impossible, you know, how will we ever plumb the depths of crucifixion, of sitting quietly in Holy Saturday with the knowledge that so much humanity sits in dark pain and learning to sit with darkness, and then coming in here next Sunday with resurrection. And it's just, I give myself every year to that story just knowing this is my story. I mean, this is the cosmic story, this is the divine story, but something of this mimics my own story. Something of this mimics my own discipleship and I wanna give myself to it such that um, I can learn to live in direct experience with the God who narrates that story. So as we come to a bit of quiet time here, I wanna put a, a slide up of the um, kind of Lenten prayer that we've been using it's got these three couplets. It obviously has a very Trinitarian shape to it. Uh, I found it in one of Tom Wright's books. He was um, trying to take what's known as the Jesus Prayer, which is the middle couplet, and make it more Trinitarian. And then a friend of mine in Atlanta put it to music, and we've been singing it during Lent. But during our quiet time, just let your eyes be upon that and think this thought with me, that maybe the first act of loving God is simply to give him attention, not Herculean acts of spiritual obedience, but just what if you let yourself focus your attention on God and just begin to surrender your will now by praying those couplets.
looking to those couplets, not to notice the words or the sentence structure, not even necessarily to notice the careful Trinitarian theology, but just to connect with God and see if directing your attention to him through praying these prayers might give you an experience of love stronger than illness, stronger than social isolation, stronger than evil, stronger even than death.